G. Campbell Morgan, who was one of the uh, famous preachers in London in late part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, once said, the greatest disappointment in heaven, if there are disappointments in heaven, will be when we realize all the things that God wanted to do in our lives and we wouldn't let him. I've been pondering that for a number of years since I first heard it. And thinking about the things in my life, the things in our lives corporately, that we are not experiencing of God because we won't let him. The problem is never with God. The problem is always with us. There are fears that keep us from from wanting to experience what God desires for us to experience. There are hesitancies. There are different priorities. There are all kinds of things that, that come into, get in the way between what God wants for us and what we are willing to let God do. And I'm convinced that probably the primary means of being open to God, more open to God, growing, growing way open to God, is about our prayers. Because in our prayers, in our time of communication with God, we hear God, we experience God. God helps us understand the events of life and the things that happen to us and others. And we engage God in a way that we simply cannot without that. And it's really that reason for which we continue and have made a part of the rhythm of our church, these prayer events. Every year, at this time of year, we set aside three weeks for us as a church and and a wider, even beyond this church, to pray. And every year, the prayer room is is set up a little bit differently. A few few different ideas, a few new things that may help us encounter God. And so I want to to take a moment and just show you about a one-minute video to give you uh, just a preview of this year's prayer room. As you see, the theme of this year's prayer vigil is, Lord, teach us to pray. And when the disciples ask Jesus that question, his response is the Lord's prayer. This is how you should pray. I suspect that that most of us have a tendency to think of the Lord's Prayer as something that may be confining rather than expanding. Maybe in our minds the Lord's Prayer is one of those things that people say in church and it just becomes words that come out of people's mouths and doesn't really mean anything. And so it, it takes on a significance maybe of smallness rather than bigness, but that was not Jesus' intent. This is a prayer that in many ways blows the minds of the people sitting in front of Jesus as he teaches them this prayer. It begins with our Father who art in heaven. A concept that that is difficult for anyone outside of the Jewish faith at that time to even be able to ponder about their God. And even for the Jews, it was not a central idea for them like Jesus makes it. Jesus When Jesus talks about prayer, when Jesus talks about God, it is most of the time in the language of our Father, my Father. 
It's an interesting thing to ponder the great God who creates all, rules over all things as our Father. It's a very different idea than coming before a king. You come before a king because you've, you've somehow impressed the king enough to warrant a visit. But if you're a child, you come to your father anytime you want to. In any way you want to. One writer said, everybody prays. Even non-Christians pray in one way or another. But what sets Christian prayer apart from all the others is that when Christians pray, what we're really doing is climbing up into the lap of our Heavenly Father. Is he the king? Yes. Is he the creator? Of course. Is he the sovereign of all? Yes. When it comes to prayer and our connectedness to him, there is, Jesus says, here's how you pray, Father. And that's why when, right before this in Matthew, he says, don't keep on babbling all these words because you think that will make God hear you. And that's in the context of people who try to get their God's attention. You know, to somebody in power, you want to get their attention, you butter them up. Right? I mean, and so they would, they would, they would go about all these words of, 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 of uh, affirmation to this person who had authority over them, but they wanted to ask something. Can you imagine a child going to their, their parent and saying, Oh, great father, you are so wonderful. You, you have done so many great things. And, and you are, you're good at craftsmanship and you're good at singing and you're good at all these things that you do. And, you, and now I have something I want to ask you. If we heard a child doing that to their parent, we would think something's not right about that relationship. And Jesus says, you don't have to come to your father like that. You're his beloved child. And then you start getting into the petitions. And the petitions are vertical, they're personal, they're horizontal. The first three petitions are between us and God. May your name be holy. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all three of those prayers are, are saying, God, this is what we want you to be. And the prayer is, help my life to reflect that. Help me to want your name to be holy. And help the way I live to make your name holy. To bring honor and glory to who you are as the King and the Lord and the Father of all. And I want your kingdom, the priorities of your kingdom, the, the, the essence of your kingdom. I want that to be the priority and the essence of my life and this world. And the way you get things done in your kingdom is the way I want you to get things done here on earth. That's a much more difficult thing to pray than we often realize. Because the kingdom of God tends to move slowly and it tends to get things accomplished in ways that are antithetical to the way we tend to want to get things accomplished. And may your will be done. That prayer is in essence saying, Father, we believe that what the Apostle Paul wrote is right. That your will is good, pleasing, and perfect. And nothing could be greater than for me and every person living on this earth to experience and to live in your will. Because your will is for shalom. Your will is for all of us to experience what we're created to experience. To know intimacy with you and the fullness of life with you. That is your ultimate will. That's my prayer. Help me 
to help people understand that. There are some people who say, some people to, to history, even some people now say, we shouldn't pray about mundane things. God's too important to pray about mundane things. Jesus says, no, that's wrong. You pray about everything. See, there are people who would say, you don't pray about everything. Jesus says, no, 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 you pray about all the things. You pray about your day, even things like your daily bread. You pray about your needs. You pray about the burdens of your life. You pray about those things that frighten you. Pray about those things that are right in front of you. You pray about all of it because your heavenly father cares about all of it. And then he starts getting into relationships. And here's where he starts meddling with us. Instead of building walls between you and other people, instead of holding on to your animosity and bitterness, you have to let that go. And to pray, Father, forgive us the way we forgive others. That's a pretty serious prayer. To say, Father, help me to forgive others the way you have forgiven me. Help me to see others the way you see me. Help me to see others the way you see them. Let all of my life and my relationships be defined by a willingness for forgiveness. And then you get to the last petition, and it's about temptation and evil. And I think that sometimes we, we, are so, we struggle so much with our failures and our fallibility and our mortality, that we almost come to the place of saying, I can't do anything about it, I just give up. And Jesus says, no, you were made for more than that. You were made to be holy. You were made to be like me. You were made for the, for, to experience the fullness of God in your life and you don't have to live under the bondage of the things that tempt you. And I think when he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, I also think there's a part of that where we're praying, Lord, help me not to have any part of promoting the evil. Set me free from that. The more I think about this prayer, the bigger it gets and the wider it gets. But, but when God wants more for us, it's not just in the words we pray, it's even in how we pray. I'm fascinated when you read scripture, how many different positions, physical positions people take when they pray. They're standing, they're sitting, they're kneeling, laying prostrate on the floor. They're walking. They pray in the temple. They pray while dancing. They pray while singing. They pray in ships. They pray in their homes. They pray virtually everywhere they are. There are no limits to how we pray, where we pray. And I think that's because we worship a God who is such a creative genius. God loves to create. There are, I think, over 9,000 species of birds. 20,000 species of fish. I think 6,500 species of reptiles. I don't understand that one, but that's a whole other thing to talk about. You know, a lot of this creation is unnecessary. We don't need that many species of animals. We don't need that all of us are so different. But we are, and the world is like that, because God loves to create. 
And the God who creates in, with such vast array, I think, is pleased when we come to him in prayer in sort of a vast array. New ways, unique ways, different ways. New ways of thinking about how we engage God. It's one of the things that we've tried to do through the years with the prayer room. To give us a whole lot of different ways to encounter God. First of all, because we encounter God differently, we're made different. But also to maybe stretch us a little bit. For some of you, maybe one of the, one of the most stretching things you could do is to spend time praying written prayers that we have available for you there. Because all you tend to do is extemporaneous prayers. Maybe the most stretching thing is to pray extemporaneous prayers because what you really gravitate toward are the written prayers. Maybe you go in and, as Matt said, you go in and just sing. There are times where I go in and spend a whole hour just listening to music and singing. And when I'm done, there's a little voice in the back of my head that says, well, you just wasted that hour because you didn't really pray. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, no, you did. Because there's something about music, for me at least, that speaks deeply into my heart. I think there is a correlation between our willingness to try some new things with God and an openness in us to let God do new things in us. I don't know what that will be. There's nothing magic magical about the prayer room. It's not magic. You're not going to walk in there and, and just automatically walk out different. But it's a place. It's an opportunity. It's an atmosphere to encounter God maybe in some different ways along with the comfortable ways. Because I think God can speak into our lives through that. John Wesley was touched. God put his finger on John Wesley's life and did some amazing things through him. You know, out of, out of his willingness to, to surrender to God, the Methodist movement was born, and, and eventually our church was born. There are some historians who would say that it's because of the Methodist movement and the transformation of people in England through that movement that Eng, that's the reason why England didn't experience the kind of revolution that France did. But it almost didn't happen. There are a number of hurdles that Wesley had to go through. Places where Wesley had to surrender himself to God. And the promptings of God that kept that movement, that birthed that movement and kept it going. And one of those was a prompting through George Whitfield, one of his associates, to preach outside the church. Wesley didn't want to preach outside the church. In fact, he felt so strongly about it that he, he even said, wrote in his journal, he said, I, was, I felt that you should do things so properly and, and in such a right way, being a proper Anglican that he was, that he said, I was almost to the place of thinking a person could not be saved to Jesus Christ outside the walls of the church. I mean, he felt that strongly about it. And Whitfield kept on him. He kept pushing him. He kept talking to him about it. And Wesley knew that's what he should do, but he didn't want to because it was so uncomfortable for him and so different for him and outside what he felt was proper. And then he wrote this in his journal. At four in the afternoon, I love this, I submitted to be more vile. 
And I proclaimed in the highway the glad tidings of salvation. Speaking from a little hill in the ground adjoining to the city to about 3,000 people. For him, it was, it was, I committed to be more vile. To do something that was so outside of what I felt was right. But because he did, that movement was born. And Wesley spent the most of the rest of his life preaching, not in the church, but outside. Out to the miners before they went into the fields at four or five in the morning. In the city streets and in the, in the city squares. And everywhere he could find an audience, he would preach. Estimated 250,000 sermons in his life. And most of those, not in the church building. And God used that. Outside the Methodist, to form the Methodist movement. And this great revival. I think Wesley understood what Jesus says in Matthew 11. He says, talks about all these cities that are rejecting him because he didn't come the way they thought he would. He isn't doing what they think he should do. And Jesus says, Father, I want to thank you that you have revealed this to those who are childlike. To those who have the openness of a child. To those who aren't afraid, aren't, don't live with, with presuppositions and pretensions about what's right and what's wrong. They just are open. And they do it. And they hear it. And they respond to it. Mark Batterson in his book, The Circle Maker, says there's a connection between prayer and our imagination. He doesn't mean making up things. But he means to be able to see things bigger. He says, the more open we are in our prayers, the more God gets hold of our imagination to what he can do through our prayers. And the more God gets a hold of our imagination, the bigger it gets, the bigger our prayers become until we actually find ourselves starting to pray for things that quite frankly, we probably would think are impossible. But somehow we can see God in the middle of it. One of my favorite Christmas carols is O Little Town of Bethlehem. Profound words Phillips Brooks wrote. He was the rector at Trinity Church in Boston for many years in the latter part of the 19th century. But he also also said this. He said, you cannot think of a prayer so great that God in answering it will not wish that the prayer was greater. You cannot think of a prayer so great that God in answering it will not wish that the prayer was even greater. And then he said, pray not for crutches, but for wings. When I read that, I got to thinking about Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. For young men grow tired and weary. and You stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And they will soar on wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And I'm convinced that 
That's what God wants for us. If we're willing. To begin to let God speak to us through new ways. And they give us eyes to see bigger things. Things that he sees. In his book, Discovering New Testament Prayer, John Koenig tells about a friend of his, Valerie Whitcomb, who was uh, at the time uh, associate rector of the Episcopalian, Episcopalian Church in the Washington, D.C. area. And she went home one day, and this was in 1990. And she went home one day, that day, and she turned on the television, the news, and she was confronted with a story about the Civil War in Ethiopia. And the main gist of the story was not just about the war, but it was the millions of people who were caught in the crossfire of the war. Innocent people who were starving to death because of the war. There was no way to get food to them because the government wouldn't allow it because of the war. And she was so broken by that. She she began to weep and the tears began to run down her face. And she said, we have to do something about this. She went the next day, talked to the senior pastor of the church, and they agreed that that spring they were going to talk about prayer anyway. So they said, well, let's make this the emphasis of our prayers. And all through the season of Lent, they talked about this. And every Friday during Lent, for five hours, the people of the church came together and they prayed about the war and they prayed about those, those people who were starving, asking God to do something. And Koenig says that it was in April that he heard about what they had done. And a couple of weeks later, he picked up the New York Times. There was an article in the New York Times with the headline that said, Millions are fed as war rages. And the subtitle was, With, with luck and human ingenuity, Ethiopian aid gets through. And he said, you know, I read this article and all these coincidences of things that led to government breakdowns and all the things that would normally have happened to prevent it, but they didn't happen. And so all these Christian relief agencies brought in tons and tons of food and they fed these people who were starving. And he said, you know, the thing about it is you can't prove prayer. But the people who prayed and the people who believed And Valerie Whitcomb didn't know one person in Ethiopia. She had no connections to the government. She had no connections to anybody there. She just had a burden for the impossible and faith in God. And people prayed. Does God always answer like that? No. But that's his responsibility. Our responsibility is to pray and to believe. And so James Smith says, the practice of prayer makes us a people who refuse to settle for appearances. It makes us people who always see that there's more going on than meets the eye. And that's what my prayer and our prayer is for these next three weeks. Somehow, some way. God will help us to see the impossible. We'll be a part of it. 
whatever sacrifice we have to make, whatever we need to do to be a part of what God is doing, it's so much more, so much bigger, so much deeper. Father, thank you for the gift of prayer. We don't always understand, but we want to be people who believe, who risk, who trust you, who put ourselves in a place to be used by you for your glory. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.